Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Here are today's top stories. A judge granted a two-week delay in the detention hearing for the suspect in the Pentagon leak case. The 21-year-old airman faces two charges related to the leaks. What is a woman? A question lawmakers asked the Secretary of Education, but didn't really get an answer. We bring you the highlights. Senate Republicans say no dice to a Democrat attempt to temporarily replace ailing Senator Dianne Feinstein. They say the real aim is confirming four extremist judges. The U.S. government has chosen to compensate three people injured by the COVID-19 vaccine. Thousands have applied for the program. A photographer won a major award for his AI-generated work, but he turned it down to spark a debate over the use of an AI in the industry. We start the program with an announcement. NTD has the unique honor and privilege of publishing two articles by teacher Li Hongzhi, How Humankind Came to Be, and Why the Creator Seeks to Save All Life. Teacher Li is the founder of Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, Spiritual practice has millions of practitioners and adherents around the world. The practice focuses on truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. On top of bringing our viewers uncensored and unbiased news, we also promote what we believe embodies universal values that will uplift our audience. We're happy to present Mr. Lee's latest articles. If you would like to read how humankind came to be and why the Creator seeks to save all life, you can find them on our website, ntd.com. Now to the news. A judge has postponed the court hearing for Pentagon leak suspect Jack Teixeira. This is at the request of his lawyers who want to review the government's detention request. The scheduled hearing is postponed for two weeks. Teixeira has waived his right to a preliminary hearing. The 21-year-old Air National Guardsman was arrested last Thursday, one week after the document leak. He's charged with unlawfully keeping and sharing national defense information and classified documents. If convicted on both charges, he faces up to 15 years in prison. The Secretary of Education, dodging questions when asked to explain what a woman is. It took place at a House hearing yesterday. Let's take a look. Can you please define for me, what is a woman? Uh, our focus at the department is to provide equal access to students, including students who are uh, LGBTQ, access free from discrimination. The questioning took place at a House Appropriations Committee hearing. Cardona defended proposed changes to Title IX rules. The changes would make it so schools have to allow transgender athletes to play on sports teams consistent with their chosen gender identity. Representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia kept pressing Cardona on the question. Is that What's the definition of a woman? You haven't given me that. You haven't answered my well, question. I think that's almost secondary to the important role that I have as Secretary of Education. My question is not sure secondary. My question is very simple. What is the def What does HHS say the definition of a woman is? Uh, I lead the Department of Education, and my job is to make sure that all students have access to public education. Which Another representative asked Cardona about boys competing as girls in sports. Do you think this is fair to biological girls? Thank you, Chairman Adderhall. Uh, our focus at the Department of Education is to provide equal access, free from discrimination, uh, to students. As we know, 
Title IX has helped over the last 50 years uh, provide opportunities for girls, and uh, we're proud of the work that we're doing to make sure that, for example, the training facilities for girls has the same attention and funding as it does for boys. Cardona says the changes to Title IX are important to ensure no student is being discriminated against. Senate Republicans are throwing up roadblocks to a Democrat attempt to temporarily replace ailing Senator Dianne Feinstein. NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us the story. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer praised Senator Feinstein, saying few have accomplished as much in office as she has. He then put in the request to replace Feinstein on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Our colleague and friend has made her wish clear that another senator temporarily serve on the Judiciary Committee. The resolution he tried to pass by unanimous consent would have put Senator Ben Cardin on the committee until Feinstein's return. The California senator has been absent for weeks due to shingles, but Senator Lindsey Graham blocked the move. He says it all revolves around four judges that Democrats can't get Republican votes for. The reason this is being made is to try to change the numbers on the committee in a way that I think would be harmful to the Senate and to pass out a handful of judges that I think should never be on the bench. Senator Mitch McConnell called Schumer's request unusual and backed up Graham. Far left wants the full Senate to move a senator off a committee so they can ram through a small sliver of their nominees who are especially extreme or especially unqualified. With Graham's objection, Democrats will now need to find 60 votes to approve Schumer's request. That would require 11 Republicans to join the remaining 50 available Democrats. Democrats have an extremely narrow majority in the Senate and only a one-person margin on the Judiciary Committee, outnumbering Republicans 11 to 10. Feinstein's absence means the committee is deadlocked. That makes it much tougher to approve judicial nominees. There are currently 12 who have already undergone confirmation hearings who are still awaiting votes in the Judiciary Committee. Representative Pete Aguilar thinks it's up to Senator Feinstein to decide her own timeline. She is a legend in California politics and a legend in the Senate chamber. Some House Democrats, such as Ro Khanna, have been calling on Feinstein to resign. But Senator Joe Manchin isn't buying that. That's ridiculous. Why That's ridiculous. That? She was elected. She served admirably. She's still part of that. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre says Feinstein's future is up to Feinstein. And look, this is a decision for her to make. 89-year-old Senator Dianne Feinstein has been in the Senate since 1992. She recently announced she will not run for re-election in 2024. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A member of President Biden's cabinet has violated a federal law. In the past, other members of the Biden administration and even the Trump administration violated the same law. Health Secretary Xavier Becerra was found to have violated the Hatch Act during an event last September. Becerra was speaking in his official capacity at the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute Annual Awards Gala. A government watchdog says during a speech he expressed support for Senator Alex Padilla's re-election bid. The Hatch Act bars using official authority or influence to affect an election. Becerra's prepared remarks were reviewed by an attorney in the department's ethics division, but the watchdog report says his statement was so obviously concerning that a member of his own staff present at the gala gasped and said, no, no, you can't say that, immediately after hearing it. 
In response to the report, Becerra says he regrets the inadvertent violation. The first couple apparently earned slightly less income last year. That's according to their latest tax returns released Tuesday. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden earned a little over $579,000 in 2022. Most of their joint income comes from the president's annual $400,000 salary, along with pensions. The first couple also made income from royalties for prior writing and speaking engagements. They paid nearly $170,000 in combined federal and state income taxes, with an effective federal income tax rate of nearly 24%. Vice President Kamala Harris and her husband also released their tax returns. Their documents revealed they made more than $450,000 last year and paid over $93,000 in federal income taxes. The United States is for the first time compensating people who were injured by COVID-19 vaccines. Thousands of people applied for compensation. So far, just three people have received compensation for their injuries. One person who suffered severe allergic shock received a little over $2,000. One person who suffered heart inflammation received almost $1,600. And another who suffered the same ailment received just over $1,000. Which brand of vaccines these were was not made public. The program is called the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. People who survive a vaccine-induced injury can receive money for medical expenses and lost employment income. So far, over 8,000 people have applied. Hundreds have already been denied. Authorities say they lack sufficient medical records or have other problems with their applications. Just 23 applicants have been approved so far. A fungus has killed a worker and hospitalized 12 others at a large paper mill in Michigan. The fungus is known as blastomyces, and it's harmful if the spores are inhaled. Local public health authorities announced last week there were 27 confirmed cases among the nearly 900 employees at Bullerud Mill, and there's nearly 80 other suspected cases. Blastomyces is a well-known fungus that is common in forests at areas in the eastern half of the United States and southern Canada, and is regularly found in heavily forested northern Michigan. It thrives in moist, decomposing logs, leaves, and sometimes soil. The disease doesn't travel from person to person, and contracting it is rare, as most people who breathe in small amounts of the spores aren't effective. Now some startling news from yesterday. A parking garage collapsed in New York City, killing a worker inside. This happened in Lower Manhattan's financial district. At least four others were injured, and TD's Jeremy Sandberg has the details. Debris, smoke, cars were sinking. It, it looked like out of a movie, and it, it was horrible. Multiple cars were crushed when a parking structure in Manhattan caved in Tuesday. Authorities say the six workers who were inside when it happened are all accounted for. One was killed. Four others were taken to the hospital. Another was stuck on the top floor. He was rescued by firefighters from an adjacent roof. Eyewitnesses next door say when they heard a large boom, they thought it came from the building they were in. Everything was sinking. It was just heartbreaking. We heard screams. I didn't know where it was coming from at first. Firefighters initially began to search the building on foot to make sure no one was inside any of the cars. They were forced to pull back when the building proved too unstable. This was a, an extremely dangerous operation for our firefighters. A robotic dog and drones were used to finish the search. 
Mayor Eric Adams thanked God for the technology that kept search teams out of danger. This is ideally what we talk about, uh, not sending a human being inside a building that's unstable. Officials say they believe the structural collapse was a tragic accident and do not suspect any foul play. Initial findings attribute the weight of the cars and the age of the building as the cause. A forensic engineer will investigate to determine what happened. The collapse occurred on Ann Street near Nassau Street around 4 p.m. Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine says it might be good to work from home this week for anyone that needs to commute to the area around the site. This is going to take a while to make it safe for the public. There's going to be rigs and equipment out here probably for days. A New York City Department of Buildings filing for the garage from 2003 says ceiling slab cracks exist, as well as defective concrete with exposed rear cracks. An $800 penalty had been paid for the violation. Records didn't state if the problems had been addressed prior to the collapse. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. They say stick with what you know. Well, one Chicago man has taken that to the extreme. Police say he allegedly robbed the same store 11 times between December and April. Police arrested 36-year-old Dante Elbert on Monday when he tried to leave the store without paying for merchandise. He now faces 12 felony counts of retail theft and one misdemeanor count of criminal trespassing. Police did not respond to questions regarding whether they believed Elbert is connected to any other thefts. Chicago detectives are continuing to investigate the matter. Jumping over to Indiana, teachers could soon receive firearms training to counteract an active shooter. The state Senate approved funding for school staff gun training. Teachers and other school employees would all have the opportunity to take 40 hours of voluntary training, courtesy of Indiana taxpayers. The current law permits teachers to carry guns, but no standardized training is mandated. The legislation would allow, also allow schools to apply for funding to cover the costs of counseling for students, teachers, and other school employees in the event of a mass shooting. Lawmakers voted down an amendment. It would have required schools to inform parents of an, if an employee completes firearm training and carries a gun. While two Democrats in the state Senate joined the Republicans in passing the bill, most of the Democrats had doubts about its effectiveness in preventing school shootings. When we come back, a hospital fire in China kills close to 30 people. Around 40 are injured and dozens forced to evacuate. Find out what officials believe caused the deadly blaze. And Beijing allegedly used its embassies to target political dissidents, even here in the U.S. How did they manage it? We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. At least 29 people were killed in a hospital fire in Beijing yesterday. Dozens of people were forced to evacuate. Video and photo of the incident were soon scrubbed from social media posts. Clouds of black smoke billowed into the sky. A video shows people trapped in the building climbing out windows using bedsheets tied together. Others took refuge by perching on air conditioning units. The fire broke out at Beijing's private Changfeng Hospital. State media reported at least 71 patients were rescued. 
39 are being treated for injuries, and over 140 people were evacuated from air conditioning units on the building's exterior. The cause of the fire is under investigation. Officials believe it sparked from welding work being done in the inpatient wing. Most of the building appeared to be without power late yesterday, with only a few windows lit up by the flashlights of workers inside. 26 out of the 29 deaths were patients from the hospital. Safety rules are frequently ignored in China, but accidents on the level of the Changfeng fire are treated with a much higher level of scrutiny. Construction accidents sometimes result from corners being cut on work hours and safety conditions, while local officials are bribed to ignore violations. And it's also known the hospital's finances were badly affected by the pandemic. According to a Global Times report, the company plans to sell shares in two subsidiaries. In just over a year, Chinese police forced 230,000 Chinese nationals living abroad to return to China. This, according to a report from Safeguard Defenders, a human rights organization that monitors disappearances in China. Chinese authorities say they persuaded the nationals to return to China voluntarily. But is there more going on behind the scenes? A defected senior diplomat from China tells us more. Methods used for that so-called persuasion include denying their children inside China the right to education and punishing their relatives in China that don't cooperate with the police. Chen Yonglin is a former senior diplomat at the Chinese consulate in Sydney. He says the Chinese Communist Party uses these methods often in the name of countering corruption. Chen defected to Australia in 2005. The reasoning of anti-corruption sounds justified. Western countries don't want those corrupt Chinese officials causing trouble or instability in their relationships with China. Some small countries have basically succumbed. For small countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America and Pacific Island countries, it's really easy for the CCP to kidnap Chinese nationals. Chun added that some Chinese embassy staff are actually police officers, saying they hide their real identities in order to carry out special tasks overseas. If China is trying to send public security officers to the United States, the United Kingdom or Australia, these countries won't accept them. They may monitor their activities and may not even issue them visas. But if they stay in the embassies, other countries can't control them. They can stalk foreign targets, even kidnap or assassinate them. They can threaten their family members and create all kinds of accidents. Chen says one of the most famous examples is the kidnapping of Gui Minhai. Gui is a Swedish citizen. He was abducted in Thailand in 2015 after publishing books critical of China's leaders. He's now detained in China. Two men were charged with running a secret Chinese police station in Manhattan on Monday. And the DOJ is charging 40 Chinese Communist Party officers with harassing U.S. residents and spreading pro-CCP propaganda. What's going on here? And how far did the CCP's infiltration of the U.S. go? I spoke with senior investigative reporter for the Epoch Times, Nan Su, to get his take on the situation. Nan Su, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Chris, for having me. So the Epoch Times has been covering the Chinese regime's suppression tactics for uh, a little over two decades. What do you make of these arrests? 
Yeah, I see. You know, the uh, DOJ is being taking the positive uh, actions, trying to stop the interference of Chinese communist regime in the U.S. soil to harass the uh, overseas political distance, uh, including Falun Gong group and other uh, political distance group, pro-democracy group. Uh, I, I think this is a great effort that's being made by the DOJ. Do you think we'll continue to see actions like this? Uh, absolutely, because there's a lot more these kind of actions, uh, uh, harassments by Chinese communist regimes been going on for decades. Can you give us some specific examples of the different ways that CCP operatives like these have been harassing um, Chinese dissidents on U.S. soil? Oh, they, they have doing a lot uh, here, you know, uh, for example, in the United States, back in 2021, July of 2021, the Chinese uh, police officers actually have came to California, uh, Southern California, in the Yemo area. There is a Liberty, Statue, uh, Liberty Sculpture Park that, you know, that's been built by the Chinese uh, uh, overseas uh, political distance. They display all these human rights fights and that's been put up by the um, by the uh, human rights group pro democracy groups in China and the Chinese police officers actually kept, uh, went to that park and they set a fire over there to burn down one of these uh, uh, statues in the park uh, named CCP virus and that's one example now uh, back in 2012 I'll give you another example in San Francisco uh, Chinatown Portmouth Square there are Falun Gong practitioners who were there try to set up a picture display to display you know the, the, the brutal persecution against the Falun Gong practitioners in China they you know display a lot of pictures now there are pro CCP groups actually uh, went to the display location. They tore down all the display boards and beat up, uh, you know, really, they beaten up all these uh, uh, Falun Gong practitioners over there trying to do, uh, try to make the display. So these things have been going on for, you know, I can go on and on, give you a lot more examples, but you can see, you know, this kind of harassment has been going around all around the world, and uh, it's been a, a, a terrible things being done been done by the Chinese Communist regime. In your opinion, do actions like these go far enough, or should law enforcement take a different approach? Well, the current uh, investments, uh, investigation scale uh, uh, that's been conducted by DOJ, I, I think they need to put a lot more resources into it because the current investigation has been going very slowly. Uh, if, unless they put a lot more resources into it, uh, I don't think they can easily and quickly stop all these kind of harass, uh, harassments going around uh, in the United States. Nansu, senior investigative reporter for the Epoch Times, thank you. Oh, thank you, Chris, for having me. German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock calls her recent trip to China more than shocking. She says the regime is becoming increasingly aggressive and repressive. China is more and more offensive, or you could also say aggressive, towards the outside, but above all, more repressive towards the inside. If you have any questions on that, we have a lot to report on. Some of it was really more than shocking. 
Baerbock didn't elaborate on specifics. Speaking of trade, she said Beijing is now more of a systematic rival than a partner or competitor. She said Germany still looks to work with China, but emphasized it won't repeat the mistakes of the past. One of the ideas she now dismisses is change through trade, which is the thinking that the West could transform dictatorships through commerce. During her visit to Beijing last week, Baerbock warned that any attempt by China to take control of Taiwan would be unacceptable. Beijing, in turn, asked Berlin to support what it called reunification of Taiwan. The communist regime claims democratically governed Taiwan is its own territory and has threatened to seize the island by force. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. After the break, Poland marks 80 years since the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. It was the largest Jewish uprising against Nazis during World War II. And with the war raging in, in the East, Ukrainian president and his Russian counterpart made separate visits to the front lines. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. A German photo media artist is making headlines. His AI-generated image won him a major photography award, but he turned down that surprise on the award stage. Let's find out why. Boris Aldugson created this picture using artificial intelligence. He ran a test by entering it to the Sony World Photography Awards. I wanted to see if uh, competitions are prepared for AI images to be handed in, and uh, they are not. In March, Eldrickson learned he is the winner in the open competition, creative category. He reached out to the award organizers and informed them about the nature of his image. It was promised that I get the questions soon. I was waiting for 20 days, nothing. And that was basically leading to the point where I said, I need to do something disruptive, something they cannot be silent about like they have been in the past. So he took to the award stage and refused the award. The awards organization responded that the jury knew the work was an AI image, but added that it stopped the conversation because Eldrickson deliberately misled them. But for Eldrickson, the award missed an important beat. It neither confirmed that AI creations could win nor rejected them. It's very um, important that they are aware that um, there will be more and more AI-generated images in photo competitions, and it should not be mixed up. It's two different things. They look the same, but they shouldn't be in the same category. Eldrickson says what AI brings to humanity is unpredictable, even unstoppable. He also sees risks this technology poses to society, especially in journalism. Of course, you don't need AI in photojournalism. We want this to be authentic because we need an authentic basis of, of facts we can talk about and find different points of view and a compromise in a democracy. Eldrickson believes maintaining the infrastructure for fact-checking is still essential, though it could be time-consuming and costly. And we need, we need to invest in this because if we don't, uh, democracy is going to fail. We will be manipulated by whoever wants to. Eldrickson hopes to distinguish AI photography going forward, like using specific terms to indicate their differences. Today marks the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising one of the largest forms of Jewish resistance during the Holocaust.
The presidents of Poland, Israel, and Germany led a memorial. Anyone who sows hatred, anyone who tramples on another human being, tramples on the graves of heroes in the Warsaw Ghetto, tramples on the graves of murdered Jews, but also tramples on the graves of those who helped those who were persecuted, those who were murdered. The three presidents spoke in front of the Warsaw Ghetto Monument in Warsaw, Poland. Eighty years ago, hundreds of Jews took up arms here against their Nazi captors. They attempted to stop the transportation of Jews to the Nazi death camps. The uprising lasted almost a month. The Nazis eventually destroyed the ghetto and killed 13,000 Jews there. Attendees at the memorial wore paper daffodils. The flower has become a symbol of the uprising. The last surviving leader of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising used to receive a bouquet of yellow daffodils from an anonymous person every year. He would go lay them at the monument. Organizers are giving out 450,000 paper daffodils in Warsaw, as this was the number of people held in the ghetto when its population was at its peak. In another memorial, thousands of people from all over the world took part in a March of the Living. The event commemorates the victims of the Holocaust. Participants walked down a nearly two-mile path linking the former Nazi concentration camps at Auschwitz. This year, 42 Holocaust survivors joined the March of the Living. More than one million people perished at Auschwitz. The Nazis set up the death camp in occupied Poland during World War II. The March of the Living was set up in 1988 and celebrates its 35th anniversary this year. More on this topic, one Holocaust survivor is making an effort to tell her story. Edith Gross, who was just 15 years old at the time, she recounts her harrowing experience. I fulfilled my sister's wish because she always said, you must survive because otherwise we never live. Edith Gross is a survivor. She beat unimaginable odds, endured the horrors of the Holocaust, and lived to tell her story. In 1944, we heard that the Nazis are coming. Edith was 15 years old, living in occupied Czechoslovakia with her older sister and brothers. In the first week, we had to wear a yellow star. If you didn't put it down and you were caught, they killed you right away. As the Nazi grip on the country tightened, Jews were forced into ghettos and not allowed to run businesses. Then the transports to concentration camps began. They told us, pack everything you can, you can carry, and you have to leave everything behind. We went for days. It seemed like for years. It was a nightmare, terrible. But finally, we arrived to Birkenau, Auschwitz. Many did not even survive the journey to the camps. When we arrived, we did see a smoking crematorium, and the smell was terrible. I remember lining up and walking from the train into Auschwitz, and there sat Mangala with a little stick in his hand. First for woman and then for man, and he directed the people. This way went to work, and this way went to, went to the crematorium. I ran over to my brother and I gave him a big hug and I could see his eyes, he was so frightened. Edith managed to follow her sister to the line. She never saw her brother again.
After Auschwitz, Edith and her sister were moved to a forced labor camp. It was very, very hard labor, and there was a quota, and my sister always had back pain, so I, I was very fast. I always made sure that I made a quota. As the Russians began to close in on their location, the Nazis moved them again, this time to Stutthof concentration camp. Stutthof was a very, very rough place waking us up during the night and uh, watching somebody being hung. Edith's sister became very ill. Her condition deteriorated rapidly. I remember she was on the other side of the electric wire and I was yelling, why my sister's name? I was for a last glance because I knew we're never gonna see each other again. And that was one of my say, of course. The Nazis, becoming desperate amidst Russian advances, started forcing the Jews on so-called death marches. We didn't have warm clothes, of course, and no food, no nothing. And we started to march. People who just bent down, they were shot. They marched from Stutthof to Danzig, finally reaching Konigsberg, now known as Kaliningrad in Russia, where they were liberated by Russian troops. Russian tanks arrived, and they said to us, you are liberated. Edith slowly made her way back to Czechoslovakia, but there was nothing left for her in her hometown. She eventually ended up in America, where she enrolled in school and learned English. Edith now has seven grandchildren and eight great-grandchildren. Today, as more and more Holocaust survivors pass away, Edith has made it her mission to continue to tell her story. She says even if she changes one mind, she's accomplished something. Coming back to the modern day, Credit Suisse has come under fire for not fully investigating accusations that the bank serviced Nazi clients and Nazi-linked accounts until as recently as 2020. That's according to a press release from the Senate Budget Committee yesterday. The bank reportedly fired an independent investigator who oversaw a vast internal review and restricted the scope of its internal probes. The Senate committee said the action left major gaps in the search for, for Nazi-linked records. In a statement on Tuesday, however, the bank said they had conducted a two-year investigation and found no evidence to support allegations about Nazi-linked bank accounts. Credit Suisse is Switzerland's second-largest bank by assets. It has spent the past few years plagued by scandals and large losses. It was also forced into a sale to rival Swiss bank UBS in a bid to halt a banking crisis. In 1998, the bank paid over $1.2 billion to settle lawsuits fired by Holocaust survivors and their heirs, claiming the banks illegally kept millions of dollars deposited by their relatives before and during World War II. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says his first trip abroad in his new role will be to Israel. While there, he'll address the Knesset, which is Israel's counterpart to Congress. It's not unusual for House speakers to visit the nation, but it's rare for them to address the Knesset. McCarthy will mark the second speaker to ever do so, and the first this millennium. His Israeli counterpart says McCarthy is a steadfast supporter and long-standing friend of Israel. In more international news, leaders of both Ukraine and Russia traveled to the war's front line yesterday. 
Russian forces are stepping up heavy artillery bombardments and airstrikes in Bakhmut. We want to warn you, some viewers may find these images disturbing. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited wounded soldiers at a hospital in Donetsk and addressed troops in the small eastern city of Avdivka, one of the main targets of a recent Russian offensive intended to reinvigorate Moscow's full-scale invasion. It is a pleasure for me to see you, shake your strong hands, and know that you hold the future of Ukraine in your hands. Meanwhile, the Kremlin said Russian President Vladimir Putin met his commanders in two regions of Ukraine that Moscow claims to have annexed. Putin asked his commanders for updates on the regions during the visit. Kherson, Zaporizhia, Luhansk and Donetsk are the four regions that Putin proclaimed annexed last September, following what Ukraine said were sham referendums. Russian forces only partly control the areas. Fighting has raged in and around Bakhmut in Donetsk region for months, with Ukrainian forces holding out despite regular claims by Russia to have taken the city. Footage released Tuesday by Ukraine's border guard service showed smoke pouring from the ruined city as soldiers engaged in firefights in the streets. <laughs> to the south, regional officials in Kherson said a Russian artillery attack on a market Tuesday killed one person and injured nine more. The Kherson Regional State Administration published a video showing a body on the ground while paramedics treated the wounded. Ukrainian troops recaptured Kherson last November after nearly eight months of occupation by Russian forces. The area is now under frequent fire from Russian troops entrenched across the Dnipro River. Soon to come, we visit a 900-year-old London hospital to see some hidden paintings that will soon return to their former glory. And Russian museum Fragrances of Time recounts the early days of the Max Factor brand. The exhibit showcases samples of cosmetics from the early 20th century. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Thanks for staying with us. Hidden inside Britain's oldest hospital, a grand staircase with paintings by an English artist. The artwork is now being refurbished for the 900th anniversary of the hospital. Once completed, the historical gem will be open for the general public to see, for the first time in its history. NTD's Jane Werrell brings us a story. St. Bartholomew's Hospital will soon turn 900 years old. Inside one wing is a stairwell that almost nobody knows about. Now it's being refurbished. William Hogarth painted two artworks on the stairwell in the 1730s. Well, William Hogarth was born locally um, at St. Bartholomew's Close, a stone's throw from the hospital. And when this building was nearing completion, he heard that the hospital governors were going to hand the commission for painting the staircase to an Italian called Giacomo Amaconi and Hogarth was insistent that this project should be done by a native artist and he offered his services for free. He was asked to decorate the staircase and then he began to think about what subjects to choose so he chose two what he called scripture stories, so stories from the, the New Testament um, and he worked very hard to make sure that they were appropriate to the hospital. 
So the painting behind us, the large canvas, um, is Christ at the pool of Bethesda. So Jesus is arriving um, at this healing pool outside Jerusalem where when the angel came down and rippled the water, if you got in quickly, you'd be healed. And Jesus is leading a procession of the innocent afflicted, people with diseases and ailments that are hoping to be cured at the pool. And in the foreground is the paralyzed man that Christ encounters and asks him, will not that be, thou be made whole? And the man says, well, I've got no one to carry me to the pool. And Christ says to him, pick up thy bed and walk. And the man is cured. So that's happening in the central part. And then on the far right, we have the wealthy woman attempting to jump the queue and get in there ahead of the, the deserving, needy um, people. So um, Hogarth inserting a bit of moral narrative into the painting. The other painting is um, the Good Samaritan. And this was the story that Jesus used to illustrate the idea of loving thy neighbor. And it tells a story of um, the Israelite traveler who's set upon by um, bandits. Um, he's robbed, stripped, left for dead by the side of the road. And whilst the priest and the religious teacher who are in the background there walk by without helping him, despite all their um, uh, qualifications to do that, it is only the uh, Samaritan, his mortal enemy, that comes to his aid. And he can be seen here pouring a vinegar onto his wound. And the right hand of the injured man is shown to be clenching as the vinegar comes into his. And so, and then um, his dog at the front has sustained a nasty gash from trying to protect its master. Um, so this, I suppose, is the working hospital. This is what the hospital is doing, man healing man. At the top of the staircase is the Great Hall, where the names of the hospital donors are inscribed on the wall, dating from the 1500s to the 1900s. Historical paint expert Patrick Beatty tests out which colour would work best for the wall. I've been asked to, um, to put up a colour uh, which matches or is pretty similar to the original colour, which we believe was an olive colour of the 1730s. Uh, and what I'm doing is putting that on one side of one of these cleaned donor boards and then on the other side of that same board I'm putting up a colour that is sort of a cleaned version of the existing colour, a colour that has been, as far as we know, has been up for maybe up to 100 years. Uh, so uh, as a result of this, this trial, um, my clients will be able to decide whether or not to go for the existing or to even uh, perhaps push the boundaries and go back to the original or something approximating it. It's hoped that the beauty of art plays a part in people's recovery and reflection. I think um, when we were in the middle of the pandemic, we began to open the building up to the staff for the first time. And um, they were very grateful because they needed to escape from the very clinical environment that they were working in high pressure to these beautiful spaces where they could unwind, reflect. Um, and we are very interested in the power of these spaces and the beautiful art and architecture to aid recovery and to allow people um, an escape from the high-pressure stressful world of the working hospital. Once the refurbishment is completed, the space is set to open to the public for the first time. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Many people know the Max Factor brand as an affordable cosmetics line, but most don't know the man behind the makeup. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on a new museum dedicated to his memory. Maximilian Faktorovich opened his first store at the end of the 19th century. 
It marked the beginning of his exclusive cosmetics and perfume empire. The museum, Fragrances of Time, recounts the early days of the Max Factor brand. He had a barber shop where he provided services of cutting hair, shaving, perming, and painting mustaches and so on. But there is also information that he sold cosmetics made by himself there. This is actually not quite typical for hairdressers. An entire section is devoted to Max Factor's Hollywood period. The exhibit showcases samples of his brand cosmetics from the early 20th century. Here are the authentic cosmetics created by Max Factor. This is everything that is connected with the cinema. These are powders and film makeup and body makeup and creamy blush. Here, almost everywhere, you can see Max Factor himself on these labels. According to the museum, the perfume and cosmetics industry was on the rise at the end of the 19th century. The country imported several big-name products from all over the world. At the same time, handmade cosmetics were quite popular. At that time, there were even manuals produced. In principle, something similar is probably produced now, too. Manuals for creating your own homemade perfumes. That is, the recipes were given right in these manuals. And as a rule, you could purchase the necessary components in pharmacy stores and mix something up at home to imagine yourself a perfumer, too. In the master classes held at the museum, visitors can make their own fragrances. Yes, we love perfumes very much. We are fans of them, so we decided to try it out. I found it on Instagram. A female blogger promoted it, so I thought, I just have to invite my friend. The museum is going on its fourth year. About 5,000 people visited last year. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up. Connecticut divers discovered a submarine wreck in the Long Island Sound. The Army sank the sub in 1946, but never disclosed where. And the Endangered Species Act helps save threatened animals from extinction. But the North Atlantic right whale continues to fight for its survival. Are the current policies helping? Details to come on NTD News Today. Connecticut divers have discovered the wreck of an experimental submarine in the Long Island Sound. The vessel was built in 1907, but was deliberately sunk a few decades later. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Richard Simon and his team discovered a 90-foot-long submarine called the Defender on Sunday. Yeah! <laughs> He'd been interested in the story of the Defender for years. So the Defender was one of these mysteries. I was trying to figure out when exactly I learned about it. Probably 2005, 2001 from a Connecticut state archaeologist. And it was one of those, we know there's a submarine in Long Island Sound, we don't know where. Simon spent months studying sonar and underwater mapping surveys of the bottom of the sound. He poured through government documents obtained under the Freedom of Information Act, all to identify any anomaly that fit the size of the sub. So whenever we're looking for a shipwreck, I try and look at where it's not, right? Because it helps you cross out process of elimination. Don't look here. We know there's something here. So doing that research, I came across a target that said it was a wooden wreck. I looked at the scans and I said, that's not wood. The submarine was originally built for the Navy, but the vessel wasn't chosen for the contract. The Army Corps of Engineers sank the sub in 1946, but never disclosed where. 
it was legitimately hiding in plain sight. Like it's kind of interesting from talking with everyone who's looked for it for all these years, but it is hiding in plain sight. It's on the charts. It's known about in Long Island Sound, just no one knew what it was, so we identified it. Simon and his team plan to spend the summer diving, filming, and taking photographs of the sub. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The Endangered Species Act has protected some of nature's most iconic animals from extinction. This law took effect 50 years ago, but the endangered right whale is still fighting for survival. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. These 15 North Atlantic right whales off the coast of Massachusetts are about 4% of the worldwide population. The name right whale, unfortunately, comes from the fact that they were the right whale to kill back in the early whaling days. Uh, because they're slow moving, they're very fat, so they have produced a lot of blubber. Uh, even their baleen was, was sold for a profit. Right whale numbers are dwindling. But conservationists attribute their continued survival to the 1973 Endangered Species Act. So the Endangered Species Act has been around for 50 years, and it's the most important piece of legislation that's ever been produced uh, really on the planet in terms of saving wildlife. The law is considered the gold standard for conservation legislation. It allows individuals and organizations to petition for a species to be listed as endangered or threatened. 99% of the listed species have avoided extinction. The Endangered Species Act's goal is to keep animals from being in jeopardy of extinction. So for North Atlantic right whales, uh, it's one of the most important things that we can possibly have uh, because it's going to help us deal with the two main mortality factors, which are ship strikes and entanglement and fishing gear. Still, the right whale population continues to dwindle. In January, a whale survey aircraft spotted 42-year-old Argo. The North Atlantic right whale had become entangled in fishing gear off Topsail Island, North Carolina. An underwater camera showed he was dragging two crushed lobster pots behind his tail, tangled in fishing rope. Thankfully, Argo was freed. The Endangered Species Act has certainly brought more attention to the plight of North Atlantic right whales, but the reality of what the numbers are doing, there were 500 whales or thereabouts 12, 13 years ago, now there are 340. With the law proving ineffective for the whales, lobster fisherman Dave Cousins thinks the regulations are ridiculous. Lobster fishers must buy special gear intended to protect right whales. Cousin says it's expensive and argues that it has no effect on the whales. We're facing rules that are just nonsensical. I mean, they, they don't pass a straight face test. I mean, we haven't killed a whale with lobster gear in Maine ever. The right whale has been listed as endangered since 1973. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Here's a fish tale for the record books. A Tennessee man caught this monstrosity of a fish on April 13th on Cherokee Reservoir in Upper East Tennessee. This is not only the largest paddlefish ever caught in Tennessee, it's the largest fish of any species ever caught in the state. The fish weighs in at 149 pounds, 19 pounds heavier than the previous record caught back in 1976. Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency confirmed Tuesday that this paddlefish, also known as a shovelbill catfish, is officially the largest fish ever caught in Tennessee. Traditional Chinese medicine has long believed that eating locally and seasonally is better for your health. Let's find out why. Here's NTD's Gina Marie 
with strong mind and body. As the saying goes, one type of soil and water nourishes the people within its proximity. That is why we often see people who are new to a place experience some kind of discomfort. That goes for whether they are foreigners or just in another location within the same country. The ancient Chinese believed that heaven and man are intertwined as one. They also believed that human beings are born with the energy from the heaven and the earth and follow the law of the four seasons. This means that the human body depends on the materials provided by the energy from heaven and the earth to survive. At the same time, it must adapt to the regular changes of the four seasons – spring, summer, autumn and winter – especially if one wants to flourish and grow. Our bodies are connected to nature, conforming to the local water, soil, food and climate. If people want to maintain their health, they must eat locally produced, natural and seasonal food. They must coordinate with nature and form their ecological microenvironment. In this way, no matter how the outside world changes, the healthy microenvironment inside the body can remain relatively stable. Therefore, only eat what is in season. Confucius advocated for this exact principle. It's important to eat the right food according to different seasons and festivals. Medicines and food obtained in this way all have the essences and fragrances of heaven and earth. These are of good taste and high nutritional value. If they are not in season, they will not have the characteristics of that particular season and their health value will be reduced. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Chris Beers, NTD News, New York City.